Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Bowery Boys episode 289, Blood and Shakespeare, the Astor Place Riot, of 1849. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And for today's show, we're revisiting a rather unusual event in New York City history, and I think something that we always need to remind people who love New York City about. And that was a deadly theater riot that occurred at Astor Place 170 years ago this year, on May 10th, 1849. Now, this was an actual riot brought about by impassioned supporters of rival Shakespearean actors who were both performing in the city at the same time. This already seems probably absurd to to many of you who've never heard of this event. And perhaps something that could even be written off is just some sort of like weird one-off event. Right, like those crazy old days when it, you know, when there was a Shakespearean rivalry so intense that New York audiences actually rioted. And also what's interesting is that Astor Place today is just a rather unlikely location for a historical riot. I mean, there's all of those coffee shops and glistening new glass towers. Right. But as we're about to explore, the theater riot was actually the culmination of many more issues. This event was actually the climax of tensions that had been building up around social class and around money. It was about immigration. It was about ethnicity. And the story, as it turns out, also stars the two biggest actors of their day, one who was American and one who was British. Uh, This is also a story about the geography of New York, because as you'll hear in this show, there are two different worlds that are colliding at exactly the spot. The world of the Bowery, which is changing with new immigration, and that of Broadway, which was a destination for the upper classes. All of that collides here in Astor Place on May 10th, 1849. And we're actually going to replay an episode on this subject that Greg and I recorded five years ago this month. So most of the show is a re-release, but again, this is a historical subject that is, I think, of such importance and is so often forgotten that we really felt strongly about representing the story again. And and also, we're going to be back at the end of the show with some new updates to the story because Astor Place, as it turns out, has changed quite a bit since we recorded this show five years <laughs> yeah. ago. I mean, it's actually kind of extraordinary, as, as many New Yorkers will tell you. So join us as we shine a spotlight on the Astor Place riot of 1849. 
Astor Place, one of my favorite places in New York, although that may be a bias from my experiences in the 1990s. Astor Place is actually a short street Mm -hmm. that goes off of Broadway and then crosses Lafayette and then hits the Bowery. But it does it in this open triangular plaza that we call this plaza itself Astor Place. Right, I always... I guess assume that the place was the center, the center the, the, the of the square. But in fact, it's actually a street, and so the Astor Place riots actually refers to most of the action taking place on that particular street. Now, the Bowery hits Astor Place, but technically ends here because as it travels out of Astor Place northward, it's called the ever elusive. Fourth Avenue. Ah, oh, right, that little strip of Fourth <laughs> Ave that really does exist. Yes. Most people know Astor Place from that fun little spinning cube that Mm -hmm. sits there. It was called the Alamo, designed by the artist Tony Rosenthal, and was planted there in 1967. The Astor Place Opera House was located just to the west of the cube. We'll talk a little bit about what's there today, but it's essentially where the subway stop is. Okay, so the the Opera House is located on Astor Place, the street, the north side of the street, and I take it Astor Place is named after John Jacob Astor. The famous fur trader, John Jacob Astor, who then, of course, became a wealthy real estate developer. In 1803, he bought a huge parcel of land that contains much of the area of today's Astor Place and Lafayette Street. To the east of this were lands owned by another prominent family. of, And I think we talked about him in the Grid Show uh-huh. and St. Mark's on the Bowery. That's the Stuyvesant plot of land. So the Astors and the Stuyvesants are sitting Head here. Head to head. In 1826, Lafayette Place was carved and eventually came into this plaza as well, and Astor himself lived there, as did a lot of extremely prominent and wealthy New Yorkers in the 1820s and 1830s. Here along Lafayette, and in particular, a group of structures called Colonnade Row today. We call them Colonnade Row today. And these are still standing. In fact, I think that the Blue Man Group is still (laughs) performing in the basement. In the basement, I know. As you might have gathered, by the 1830s, this was sort of a heart of fashionable society around this area. If you think just what's happening a little bit to the west, those lovely houses that are being built alongside Washington Square. So Mm. the elite New Yorkers are moving to this particular area. And that's kind of interesting because it's so close to the Bowery. Especially here at Astor Place, you have the Bowery, which I don't think of as elite or society at all. But they weren't really on the Bowery. They were actually on Lafayette. I mean, that's one of the great intrigues of New York City is that you actually have all stratas of classes living so close to each other. And that is really underscored when you think of Broadway and the Bowery, which represent two different forms of classes by the 1830s and 40s, being pretty much parallel. And this is the closest place. Astor Place, um, where they almost but not quite intersect. So that sets up Astor Place, but what about the riots? We've talked about many a riot so far on this show. There's been a lot of rioting, a lot of public disturbances, especially here in the 19th century. Stupid question. Uh What exactly is a theater riot? Where the audience just gets all up in arms and... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, if you think about the theater as being a place where just people collect in the evening Mm -hmm. and Hundreds of people, sometimes more than a thousand. And so sometimes a lot of uh, political statements and performances can 
really bring out the best and worst in people. So it also represents certain things because for much of New York's history, theater, at least up until this point, has been very, very associated with the English. And as you know from American history, you know, the new country has had struggles with the British even after the Revolutionary War. Even the great Park Theater, which is New York's first official theater down there on Park Row, that's even seen a share of its riots or disturbing behavior. In 1831, there was a British performer who had offended an American on his way over on on a ship. The crowds heard about it and got so angry that they literally threw him out the window. (laughs) Well, that's one way to get a hammy actor off the stage. But I guess we should also remember that theater is the dominant form of entertainment at this time in New York City. So just as people do get whipped up today, you know, over a Justin Bieber concert or something. (laughs) I mean, when you do have celebrities and you do have popular entertainment, the spirit can move you in unusual ways. What excited people the most back in the period that we're talking about? Well, William Shakespeare was a hugely popular in America at the beginning of the 19th century. Shakespeare plays were quickly adopted by those that even expanded west of America. It was a top-tier form of entertainment, of course, and performed everywhere, from riverboats to the sheds and backwater towns. Shakespearean plays are amongst the most read in the United States, and the language of Shakespeare probably wasn't as foreign as it sometimes seems today. We're talking, I guess, 150 years ago, closer (laughs) to that kind of language. And then, you know, plays, of course, would not always be performed strictly as they were written. They would sometimes be stripped down. Full-bodied, loud performances would be given. You know, naturally, the crowds themselves would react to a more robust, flamboyant performance and sometimes get involved in the shows themselves. People would even not even understand the line between fiction and reality, would sometimes react to the actors on stage as though it was actually happening. All of this, I suppose, making it easier to understand why people would get whipped up into a frenzy and riot. (laughs) Yeah, it it makes a little bit more sense. And I think that once we get closer to the riot here, I think we'll make it even seem more inevitable. Now, up until the 1820s, the greatest actors in New York, in fact, most actors were British actors who came over, who were imported. But that is not the case with the first actor I'd like to introduce you to, Greg. America's most famous, or one of America's most famous 19th century performers, a man named Edwin Forrest, who was born in Philadelphia in 1806. He debuted on stage at the age of 11, playing the role of the lovely Rosalia de Borgia in (laughs) Rudolph, or the Robbers of Calabria. Well, he quit the stage after his father passed away, but he had a very weird break that brought him back into the theater, which I thought was just worth mentioning Mm -hmm. to you. Um, He was also dabbling in and um, participating in experiments uh, into the effects of nitrous oxide. (laughs) You didn't know I was taking it. Wait, is that today's laughing gas? I think it was yesterday's laughing gas, too. He had given himself to be experimented upon with nitrous oxide. And while he was under, so he's kind of like knocked out, right? Uh-huh. He launched into a Shakespearean soliloquy. <laughs> he just launched into Richard III. It just and came out of his subconscious while he was he lapsed was just, in was, this. He was just such a natural-born actor that even passed out on nitrous <laughs> oxide. He, he couldn't help but launch into Shakespeare. So somebody who witnessed this, who was there, was so moved that he arranged for him to have an audition in Philadelphia at the nearby Walnut Street Theater. 
from there, he sort of built his reputation because New York and Philly were, you know, there were already lots of actors, like you said, lots of actors from England. So he went west, followed the expansion of the U.S. west to seek his fortune. He did come to New York in 1826 and had a very successful run at the Bowery Theater. Which I'll talk about more in a second, but it is true that he became the leading star of the Bowery Theater. As these theaters are associated with people of different classes, of different strata, he himself would then become closely associated with the men and women of the Bowery. Right. It's funny that New York audiences were also a bit divided on him. He had a very expressive, perhaps hammy, performance style. And very loose. And different from the English actors who came over. This endeared him to the crowds, say at the Bowery Theater, but the more elitist, highbrow crowds looked down upon him as sort of a lesser type of actor. He wasn't quite as refined as the imported British actors. Well, yeah, they preferred, I think, I believe it was called the handkerchief style. Perhaps that was a derogatory phrase, a more refined, elegant style. Elegant, right. And that was not our friend Forrest. (laughs) While he was off in Europe in 1836, he was performing in London in The Gladiator at the Drury Lane Theater. The show was a total bomb, but he stayed on to do several different Shakespearean productions, which were generally pretty well received. And he was hosted and feted by the great actors and tragedians of the day. So in this corner, we have Edwin Forrest, the brawny, new style of actor, and then, but American. But I've set this up as a competition. So, who is in the other corner? In the other corner, we have William McCready. Now, McCready was born in 1793, so 13 years before Forrest. McCready is born in London into a theater family. He was roped into performing as Romeo in 1810 in Birmingham. And he would go on through many, many Shakespearean productions to become one of the most famous and celebrated Shakespearean actors in England. He had a much softer, much more philosophical and thinking way of acting. He didn't just act, however. He was also the theater manager of several big theaters of the day in London. A true impresario. Yeah, and and he he brought new ideas to the theater. While managing, he really insisted that the cast would rehearse together, which is actually pretty interesting. (laughs) It it seems so obvious to us now, but I guess at the time, people would go off and learn their lines and just sort of like appear on stage together and, you know, (laughs) wing it together. Now, was he well-known in the United States? I mean, did he, he, when did he first come to the United States? He, right. He was known in the U.S. Uh, he had taken a tour in 1826 and then also in 1843. So he was already known to U.S. audiences who respected him, and especially, as we said before, the sort of highbrow elite audiences loved him and preferred him to the acting style of our man Forrest. Forrest and the others, yes. Right. And in fact, there was a s- sort of strange rivalry between the two of them, even though they knew each other. And when Forrest went to London, he met up with McCready and dined with him, and they seemed to have a nice working relationship. It starts off rather friendly, and then literally over the years just corrodes a, a mixture of their own animosity, but then also the, what people are bringing into both of their performances. Right, because what was behind the fact that McCready seemed to be the one who was preferred by these elite crowds. So when 
McCready came back in 1843, his second tour in the U.S. He did a trip across the country in which mm-hmm. he was performing in Shakespearean plays, and wouldn't you know it, but Forrest trailed him and actually staged the same plays in the same <laughs> towns at the same time. Now, I had read that it was actually Good for both of them. It was good well, for Well, it was business. covered by all the papers, of course. This was an event. This was like a huge PR event. I mean, although I can't imagine, it's funny thinking of people just going to see Macbeth like one night and then going again to see another <laughs> and you see another actor right. perform it. But Neighbors divided. Families divided about which show you'd go to. <laughs> Were you a McCready or a Forrest? And this was throughout the Midwest, throughout the South. That's right. And two years later, Forrest the American, goes back to England to perform, and he's feted and hosted around town even after that, right? However, he ran into trouble while he was playing the role of Hamlet, which didn't really gel with his rather muscular style um, Mm -hmm. of performance, and the audience hissed at him. Now, you know, Mm. which was also not terribly uncommon, but here he thought that he was... Above the hissing, he didn't get hissed at back home. And this was kind of like booing, but you could hiss without people realizing that you were the one doing it, because you could just see him making anything in my face. He thought that McCready was somehow behind this, the the man who he had just trailed across the country. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there was a little bit of sabotage going on. If not by McCready, then certainly some of his supporters. So, right after this, McCready was playing in Hamlet up in Edinburgh. So Forrest, since he was over there, headed up to to see him in Hamlet, got a box, during the show, stands up in his box and very publicly and demonstratively <laughs> hisses at McCready wow. on the stage. Creating, so this is th- throwing the gauntlet here. Creating a scandal. He, he, I'd even call it an international incident. <laughs> this has really now laid a groundwork for some bad blood, some right. bad feelings between these two, and of course, like the two things that they represent... And, and, and we're not even at Astor Place yet. No. So here we've got these two hissing actors, right, over hissing cousins um, <laughs> off over in, in, in Edinburgh. And this is where it gets kind of weird, right? McCready is also, at this point, a little bit past his peak. You know, he's also dealing, battling with a little bit of depression. His fortunes are starting to dwindle. Well, he comes back to New York for a... Farewell tour in 1848 to 1849 that will take him around the country and have some big shows at the Astor Place Theater. Not at the Bowery Theater, not at the park, at the Astor Place. So let me tell you a little bit about the Astor Place Opera House or the Astor Place Theater. It's Um, the same place, It's the same place. This is what Edwin Burroughs and Mike Wallace in their book Gotham, they called this the bulwark of refinement. It was opened in November of 1847. It was the pinnacle of separating classes, like tying it to some of the wealthiest names in New York City. Up until this point, most theaters actually had benches for people to sit on in the first few rows. But over at the Astor Place Theater, it had numbered reserved seating, which was saved for subscribers. So, of course, that set them apart a little bit. It would have a set of open boxes, and this style would, of course, influence later theaters like the Academy of Music and everything. Because these were these open boxes were, would allow you to be seen, see and be seen, and show that you appreciate the highbrow here. And when you say boxes, these are... These are boxes built into the walls on different levels. Correct. This place also had a dress code, quote, freshly shaven faces, evening dress, fresh waistcoats, and kid gloves. 
Okay, so I don't know what to pounce on here. The freshly shaven faces <laughs> or the kid gloves. Just the kid gloves are the little dainty white sure, gloves sure. that Which, men would have to wear. Yeah, and it looks great with the waistcoat. Oh, it does. <laughs> I have mine in the other room. Now, of course, the poorer New Yorkers could also come to the theater here, but they would be relegated to the third floor, which was called the cock loft, and only reachable by a narrow stair. So, Did they have to can... wear kid gloves up in the cock loft? I don't think so. I think it was a little A relaxed, little looser? A little looser there. Very soon after its opening, a grand theater manager, William Niblo, was brought in. Oh, of Niblo's Garden. Yes, we've mentioned him before. One of the great stages of New York and also on Broadway, a little bit further down at Prince Street. He, this was his real stab at trying to establish opera as a grand tradition in New York. People have been trying to do this, trying to bring opera. Um, with because, you, of course, the Metropolitan Opera is not even anywhere with, around at no, this point. No, of course not. Soon, of course, the Astor Place became a symbol for all the many dalliances and excesses of the wealthy class. Let me make a contrast with a theater that's a little bit down the street, down the Bowery, which you have just mentioned, the, of course, the Bowery Theater. A version of this particular theater, which was at 46 Bowery, opened in mid-1820s and was at that time a rival of the Park Theater. For a hot moment, it was actually the jewel of society. So the Bowery Theater that I was talking about before yes. as the sort of like middle class or lower class theater. It started on top. Oh. Yeah, interesting, right? Because, but this what is happened? what happened. Well, first of all, the theater itself burnt down a couple times and they rebuilt it. And so that by 1845, the Bowery Theater that we are discussing today, it was one of the largest playhouses in the world. It could fit 4,000 people, but... Within that 20 years from when it opened to this newest version, New York itself had moved uptown. Had moved uptown and had changed drastically. The rich became super rich, but then the poor around here became extra poor. Around the 1830s and 1840s were with this influx of brand new immigrants, primarily Irish, primarily needy and poor, who settled around the neighborhoods around the Bowery. So the theater itself, the high society, fled northward. was no longer home at the Bowery Theater. Um, it became something a little different. Home to variety acts and minstrel shows, melodramas that actually reflected the lives of people who lived around here. Edwin Forrest did play Shakespeare for many years. was his home theater. But accompanied by an, a motley crew, not only on stage, but off. For the culture of the Bowery at this time in the 1840s was ruled by the world of a term that we've used before, the Bowery Boys. Now that's B apostrophe H-O-Y-S. We've sometimes... Have we said Bahoys? Well, to distinguish... Kind of jokingly? To distinguish between ourselves, the Bowery Boys, we have said Bahoys, but the real... Right. It's, it's supposed to emulate the Irish pronunciation, so it's really the Boys. You know, a little bit ruffians, also trendsters, the first wave young immigrant populations. They were very poor, many of them, but they had these new freedoms. Uh, many of them were here without their families. Many of the men, and this is this will come into play a little bit later, were members of the volunteer fire departments. Mm -hmm. We mentioned on our fire department show just a couple months ago that this was a badge of masculinity and honor. And so they would... And almost tribal. Yeah. And they would often wear their outfits out for a night of drinking. Okay. So we very well established at this point that there's a tension between the higher classes and the lower classes for people with money and not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there's also tension between the 
old timers or people who had been living in New York for at least a generation and the newly arrived immigrants. Right. So I believe you're referring to sort of the nativist movements of the 1830s. There was a lot of hatred towards the Irish, not because they were the newest immigrants. They were the newest immigrants, not and um, but not just because they were poor and they were new, but they were Catholic, where at this right. particular time... Almost unheard of. Yeah. There was also this perpetual anti-British sentiment that was going on in certain sectors of New York. You know, in 1849, it's 65 years, you know, from the Revolutionary War. And, of course, in the War of 1812, uh, where the British actually burnt down the White House and traumatized all of the East Coast, that was only 35 years from the events that we're talking about now. So that's still kind of fresh in a lot of people's minds. So you have really anti-British sentiments and also anti-Irish sentiments. So this sounds like a huge, just big mess of of tensions between classes and, and nationalities. So where we left off, Greg, with our two dueling Shakespearean famous actors, the American and the British, we have McCready. Here he is in the city. It's now 1849. He's been traveling around the country. And here he is on May 7th performing at the Astor Opera House. There are, however, pro-forest patrons out there who want to stir up some trouble. There are patrons who have bought hundreds of tickets for the opening performance on May 7th, mostly up in that upper section that you were talking about. In the cockloft. Right. Yes. Without the gloves. Yes. Most of these cheap seats have been taken by the pro-forest people who have been organized by various factions, many, many connections to Tammany Hall. In fact, one of the leaders of this group of pro-forest ticket buyers was a man named Isaiah Rinders, who was a Tammany Hall figure who saw this as an opportunity to score big points against the city's new Whig mayor. Oh, right. On top of all these other differences, we also have these two political parties that are aligning with all these different sides. In this case, the Democrats and the Whigs. Right. And the Democrats, being led or being highly influenced by Tammany Hall and mm-hmm. by by these people like Rinders who were gamblers and hucksters and, and also who dabbled in the Five Points gangs. They had control over big swaths of the city's underbelly. He supplied the political organization with gangs to intimidate voters and to instigate election fraud. So you can only imagine what shenanigans he could cook up at the theater. So this day, he buys hundreds of seats, right? Gives them out to his people, the opening performance. Unfortunately for McCready, these hooligans, really, uh, didn't arrive empty-handed. Because once McCready stepped out onto stage, they started showering the stage with a a wide variety of (laughs) items. All manner of rotten produce. We're talking potatoes, eggs, tomatoes. I mean, you can make a Spanish omelet with the things that were being thrown down on the I just have to say that in doing research for this show, I have never thought of the number of items that could be thrown onto a stage. Like, did you see the the item referred to as only stinking liquid? No, what could that be? I have no idea what that is, but I'm, I'm afraid of being hit by something. Right, right. A foul liquid. Most dangerously, they actually ripped up a chair and threw it down into the orchestra and onto the stage. That is vicious. Well, you can imagine also with eighteen hundred seats in there, how well how many how many seats could be thrown? Yeah, no, just how loud 
how loud it was too. There were shrieks from the audience. There were shrieks from the, you know the orchestra area, the stage. The actors kept on playing, even though people started shouting and hissing. People were shrieking things like "Down with the codfish aristocracy!" <laughs> and we're talking. I mean, this is obviously no microphones. The actors are projecting, you know, in, the, in an old nineteenth-century right. fashion, but certainly not over the shrieks coming from the rafters. No, here. they actually soldiered on, just mouthing the words pantomiming. Uh, it, it didn't make any difference if they were talking or not, but they they tried to make themselves understood. And, Meanwhile, yeah, and this is, by the way, this is the words of Shakespeare, and they can't even get them out, so they have to pantomime the, the play. But McCready <laughs> stayed on stage and carried through to the end of the performance, and meanwhile, that same night, just downtown from this theater, at the Broadway Theater, Forrest was on stage at the very same time in a rival production with a rival crowd, mostly <laughs> supportive, nobody who was agitated in the same way. So there were no stinky fluids being thrown upon the Broadway theater. There might have been stinky fluids there, but nothing was being <laughs> thrown sure. on the stage. We should note that Forrest was not involved in the actual planning of all of the madness at well, the Astor Place. Yeah, it just seems like it's all getting carried away, and it's almost out of their hands at this point, either of these actors. He, right. He was perhaps not unpleased um, by by what was happening to his biggest rival, but he wasn't actively behind the planning of mm-hmm. it. So McCready can't be very thrilled by all of this. How no. is he reacting? Well, he didn't like it one bit. He couldn't wait to get off the stage. And once outside, uh, and the streets were also full of people, people were agitated outside as well, he decided that he was taking the first ship back the next day, back to the homeland, back to England. He was getting out of town. He was breaking his contract. That was the first night, and that was, as far as he was concerned, his final performance. Goodbye, New York. But New York's elite audiences had other plans for him because they didn't want him to take off. First of all, some of them were looking quite forward to his farewell performance, his final performance on the 10th. They didn't want to miss that. But even deeper than that, what would that have said if basically some rowdy crowds, hoodlums, if you will, were left to disrupt New York society in its most hallowed hall? Yeah, yeah, you, you can't give in to this. It's an affront. So 47 of the city's most esteemed residents wrote a letter that was published in the papers calling for McCready to please stay in town and see this thing out and promising him that he would be protected and that the theater would be protected so the patrons could also go with confidence on the 10th to his final production. And you're not kidding here. There were names like Washington Irving. Big deals signing on to this because they all had a lot at stake here. However, the only problem was, um, what would happen if, well, there really was a problem on the 10th. This new mayor didn't really seem like he had that much together in terms of protecting all of his citizens. There wasn't an enormous police force like we have today. This new mayor, by the way, Caleb Woodhull, did promise the, you know, the entire police force would protect the streets and would make sure that order was kept in Astor Place on May 10th. But things did not quite turn out that way. Especially because Mr. Rinders, who we were talking about down in the Five Points area, was heading off to the neighborhood saloons, to dusty street corners, to gangs, people hanging out at the corner, talking to them, getting them excited about the performance on the 10th that hadn't been called off. In fact, it had been called back on. Pamphlets went up, plastered up on walls, and handed out 
pamphlets that read, Working men, shall Americans or English rule this city? Many of these handbills were hanging around all over town on the morning of Thursday, May 10th, 1849. Throughout the town, playbills were announcing that McCready would be performing that evening at the Astor House, Forrest down at Broadway performing The Gladiator. Right, in which he's playing Spartacus, too, which is an anti-elitist character. Now, that morning, down at City Hall, the new mayor, Caleb Woodhull, perhaps a little bit out of his element here. Out of his league. Out of his league. He called a meeting, called William Niblo down, and asked him to close the theater, but... I mean, this is the hottest show in town. It's sold out. It's what everyone is talking about. Obviously, he's saying, no, I mean, I'm going to have my show. You just need to take care of things, Mr. Mayor. Knowing the crowds would be too much even for his police force, he actually called out the National Guard, the militia. You know, some of them down at the Arsenal at Grand and Center Street, um, which happens to be centrally located between Broadway and the Bowery. And then others, I believe the 7th Regiment, was over at Washington Square Park, ready to march over. Very, you know, the, already that was a parade training ground, so they mm-hmm. were just ready. They could just train while, while the day was passing. But the thing to remember here is that it's a, these regiments are volunteer regiments, okay? So it's unlike the police, and they're armed, okay? Because that's where the real troubles begin here. Renders had, of course, bought another handful of tickets for this show and distributed them to the boys and other sympathizers down on the Bowery, in particular at a place called McNulty's Saloon, which was on Doyer Street decades before Doyer Street would become known as the Bloody Angle of Chinatown. So there was already violence being cooked up here. You'd think that these b- boys would be getting kind of tired of this particular production of, of Macbeth, no? Yeah, I would think that some of them could jump on the stage and perform it themselves quite admirably, actually. So and, that- and go home with enough produce <laughs> for dinner. So a little before 5.30, McCready, a little skittish, leaves his hotel, which is just a couple blocks away from the opera house. And he leaves and then goes to the theater to get ready. By 6 p.m., one-third of the entire police force is already gathered here at Astor Place, with dozens in the theater, and I believe it was like almost 100 were gathered at a local stable, which was nearby, that was owned by the great-granddaughter of John Jacob Astor. Like, So they were sort of in preparation, but you didn't want all these policemen hanging out. It would just looked a little bit too... Ominous. Ominous. At 7 p.m., the ticket goers arrived for the show and they arrived to quite a sight for already gathered in the street were hundreds of men, several of them wearing those flamboyant volunteer fire outfits. Mm. Many of the troublemakers that were given these tickets by Render were actually weeded out and turned away at the door and were not allowed to enter. This only made these anti-McCready people more angry that they couldn't go in. Kid gloves and a white vest, damn them, went the cry throughout the crowd here in front of Astor Place. By this time, over 10,000 people had gathered outside in the adjoining streets. Rabble-rousers, certainly, but also curiosity seekers who were just, you know, had heard everything about this. Let's go check out what's happening, which would be a very bad idea. McCready... Nervous, applying his grease paint, bead of sweat certainly running down his face, mounted the stage. 
So shortly after 7.30 began the performance. During the first act, there were some people that began to hiss and shouted at him, just as they had done three days previous. I love the fact, however, that he, in the voice of Macbeth, as if he were that character, would turn to the audience and point out these particular troublemakers. And then there were, you know, dozens of police inside here. So they would take those troublemakers and they would march them downstairs to the storeroom where they would lock them up. And so by the end of this evening, there's going to be a lot of people in that store storeroom. So the, the, the storeroom of the theater became a sort of jail. Yeah, a little like a city jail. I mean, how disturbing this must have been that, you know, here you're just a normal audience member trying to see the show. Then you're kind of hearing people screaming from the from the storeroom, screaming that they're going to kill the police, they're going to kill the actors, and they're going to kill the audience. They're going to burn the place down. And in fact, they even tried to start a fire in the storeroom using a bit of straw, which filled the passageway with smoke. The police put out the blaze and beat down the buoys. Things were going really swell, actually, for McCready. He was able to perform almost uninterrupted until the start of the second act, when some disturbances from outside briefly stopped the show. Now, out there, the crowds were surging violently. People were shouting and screaming. The police were lined up at the front door, blocking people from entering. Unfortunately for this story, they were working on the New York sewer system nearby and so there was a huge pile of hundreds of loose cobblestones so many of the more incensed members of the of the mob here began pelting the theater with stones shouting now boy for a shower and so dozens of cobblestones were then thrown against the walls thrown against several buildings around the theater. Many windows were shattered up and down the streets. Then they began shattering, smashing the gas lights so that what would happen is pretty soon here, it was a strange, ominously dark place very soon where the only light was coming from the Astor Place Theater with the light streaking down upon this like angry mob. And then the moon, which had just a couple days before been full, so it's still a very bright moon, casting down a very dark light onto the crowd. One of the leaders of the anti-Macready, a dime novelist by the name of Ned Buntling, was instigating a lot of this violence on behalf of Renders himself. He kept walking back and forth in the crowd, encouraging people to throw more stones and brandishing in his hand a Roman broadsword that he would hold aloft and, you know, encourage people to create to cause more disruption and violence. So indeed, the theatrics were not limited to the inside of the theater. I would even say there's more melodrama happening outside. So when all of this is happening, you said that there was this police force that, yeah. was, that was outside. After this point, it's just police officers, and they can't and actually, they actually can't handle it. The crowd managed to smash in one of the doors, and they started to pour into the theater, but the police beat them back with their clubs. Then, of course, the mob responded by stoning the police officers. So within a few minutes, you had several dozen people with injuries and collapsed, and people bleeding everywhere. And this is while the show is on. This is while it's going on inside, yes. At 9.15... The militia did finally arrive on horseback. The word had gotten down to them that, like, things are getting out of control. We need you to come up right up Broadway. Just imagine these forces riding up a darkened street. As the militiamen rode up, they were suddenly assaulted with stones and loose boards. Burn the damned den of the aristocracy, went one of the cries. 
Now, Mayor Woodhull did arrive on the scene. He stole away into the theater very briefly, but witnessed the gruesome sight of police officers and soldiers that were injured and bleeding from these injuries. And then, sensing the total chaos of the thing, he escaped and left and hid away in a hotel for he most of the off. evening. He took off almost immediately. McCready, at this time, he keeps performing. I find this incredible. I mean, what a trooper. He completes the show. He completes the play. Some actually observed that it was one of his finest performances, rising particular lines of dialogue that had a certain ironic potency, such as, I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest comes to Dunsinane. Evoking even the name of Forest. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, people applauded at that line. He completed the show and came out and bowed to the audience and was greeted with a whole variety of, 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 of applause, of hissing, of just general madness. Outside, the violence is becoming even more vicious. The general of the militia shouted back at the crowd and warned them to stand down or they would be shot by the militiamen. No one was listening. No one could hear, probably. So the militia began firing shots above the heads of the crowd. Imagine, you know, these are old muskets. So imagine the haunting, crackling sound of soldiers shooting off these weapons all at once above an army of terrible shouting. And and the air soon filled with smoke and sulfur, almost like it was a, a battlefield. They slowly pushed up Astor Place and pushed the crowd back, but they were, they were being fought at every side. These bullets that they were shooting up in the air went up all over the place. An elderly woman was shot and killed in a, in a tenement building nearby, and soon people were hiding under their beds, hiding, trying to like escape these random sh- shower of bullets. Soon those muskets were aimed into the crowd. A scene of bloodied faces. People crumpled to the ground soon followed. With such a successive rounds of shots by these militia, of course, the boys themselves had guns. And so pretty soon it was just nonstop madness. And of course it's dark. No one even knows who they're shooting at. There was a streetcar that unfortunately went by at this time. And one of the passengers was killed instantly from a flying bullet. So many horrible scenes on all the side streets, you know, littered with bodies, people like carrying people. The air was filled with stones, whizzing bullets. There are soon dozens of injured and dead. Some of them are being carried into the theater. And this is where, I I mean, up until this point, I'm sure there's lots of panic, but there's a certain safety to the theater in a weird way because it is being protected. But once people see people who have been killed outside, the audience begins to panic. And here you've got... 1,800 people inside this theater. 1,800 people that I guess, now that the performance is finished, are going to try to leave. By 11.30, and I believe that the audience was still in the theater by this time, because of course they couldn't, they couldn't leave. It was too dangerous. But then the militia brought in a new weapon at 11.30, two cannons. One that was facing down Broadway, and one that faced down the Bowery. The leader of the militia proclaimed that the cannons would be ignited and launched into the crowd indiscriminately if they didn't disperse. And and this had never happened before, right? Never before had a militia been brought out to fight an American crowd. In many cases, they were firing into people they probably knew and worked with. 
Just imagine the streets of today's East Village. Okay, those streets that you and I have walked many a time. But imagine this gruesome horror show, unspeakable scenes of tragedy up and down these streets, injured people trying to find help, for instance. Any place, a lot of people died at drugstores, trying to get into drugstores. Some drugstores were open and could help people. And so those became shelters for people. One man made his way to a saloon and died upon the billiard table. Uh, corpses were soon gathered and laid out in front of police stations. Um, when the smoke cleared, I mean, when, when things could finally be evaluated, 22 to 25 people died. I've seen different numbers in different places when you have events that are this old. It's sometimes hard to find an exact number, but 22 to 25 people had died, but hundreds had been injured. Most of those who died were not part of these rioters. They were bystanders. In many cases, they were sometimes children. It was stray bullets hitting random people. Throughout the night, as you can imagine, the saloons around here were festering with angry rioters who many feared new violence, many wanted new violence. They wanted it to continue. One gang even scoured the streets late into the morning looking for McCready with an express purpose of killing him. But of course, he had escaped the theater in a disguise. He had crept through the crowd. No one recognized him at all. He went to his hotel, got his stuff, and then basically secreted himself away up to Boston, never to see New York City again. And New York the next day, you can only imagine, was festering with anger. People gathered on May 11th at City Hall Park. Thousands of people showed up for a rally demanding that there be some kind of action taken against the authorities who had launched this plan of attacking Americans in the streets. Yeah, it's amazing that the, now the, the focus is shifting a little bit now, away from just a certain kind of anti-British, anti-upper crust, but now actually aimed squarely at the city government itself and the militia. Probably a lot of that anger was because so many of the people were just innocent bystanders. Right. This was such reckless, it seemed, policing Absolutely. that went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even during that rally at City Hall, a boy was killed. Because it was because it because itself it was, was out so of control. Crazy? Wow! Yes, the, and the crowd swelled, and it started a sort of a march up Broadway to Astor Place. Along the way, there were skirmishes with the police, but in, in the end, the police did hold control of the crowd, and the thing kind of fizzled out. Unsurprisingly, this event took a toll on the opera house itself it was already having a hard time and you know we've gone back and forth and even what we called it it's the astor place theater it's the astor place opera house same place it was switching its names you know it started out as the opera house when it couldn't fill itself it would sure. just switch over mm-hmm. to the theater in this case you know with mccready it was doing shakespeare and so it was the, it was called the theater at this point but it was already having hard times. Now it was forever branded and associated with this with this disaster. So it was nicknamed the Massacre Opera House at Disaster Place. So <laughs> a very unfortunate pun, but that's yes, a little that, macabre. Mm-hmm. Just four years later, the inside of the Astor Place Theater was dismantled. It was taken apart. And the building, the shell of the building, was sold off for $140,000 to the New York Mercantile Library, which rechristened it Clinton Hall. About 40 years later, in 1890, Mercantile Library was ripped down, and built in its place was an 11-floor structure 
to to take its place because they needed more space uh, for the library. Mm-hmm. So it that building is still standing today. That is the building that stands there to this day. The building that is to the west of the Astor Place Cube. Right. right? In between Astor Place itself, the street, and 8th Street to its north, mm-hmm. with a subway downstairs. And on this building's ground floor is a Starbucks, which I'm sure <laughs> you know and have maybe even gone into to use the bathroom at some point. <laughs> well, it's it's actually, I think it's been there for 20 years. I think it's been one of New York's oldest Starbucks. It's just funny that... What a tragic story. What an important piece of history. And marking it today, there is no marker, I don't believe, to this event. But there is, however, a place where you can get a good latte. Now, on a less ironic note, I think that maybe there is a marker to this event just in our popular conception of Shakespeare and performances of Shakespeare being seen today as somewhat elitist. Listen, many people are going to take issue even with that statement. Obviously, everybody reads Shakespeare. It is not meant for just an elite audience. But there does seem to be a popular notion that people who are into Shakespeare attend Shakespearean performances or even understand Shakespeare are perhaps part of an elite group of theater goers or that it is not part of every man's theater experience. Well, I mean, for instance, there's not... I mean, you will occasionally have a great Shakespeare show on Broadway. And there are many attempts, of course, today to to transform Shakespeare into something that's more modern and relatable to quote-unquote normal audiences. But, I mean, think that... In the 1840s, the time that we just talked about here, Shakespeare was crossing into those different strata. Like, it was just being performed in different ways based upon the crowd. Well, 150 years later, I'm sure there are other things that have influenced it as well. Mm -hmm. Certainly, the Astor Place riots played a part in in, in this new distinction of Shakespeare as highbrow entertainment. And thus ends our tale of a very tragic event in New York, and an event that I, I do think is just is not familiar to most New Yorkers, especially because Astor Place is such a wonderful and ever-changing place, of course. Within 10 years of the Astor Place riots, Cooper Union would be built there, and there would be just a new flavor, just a different feeling to this neighborhood. Indeed, its foundation building would open in 1859. Well, we are back in 2019. Yes, we back are. Back to the future. Back to the future on the 170th anniversary of that particular riot. And the place in which it occurred, Astor Place, is quite a transformed area of town uh, in this day and age. Yes, Astor Place today looks much different than it did when we released the show in 2014. Mm-hmm. In 2016, at the end of 2016, the city basically cut the ribbon on and and reopened Astor Place, the new, shiny, redeveloped Astor Place that included lots of new pedestrian space. In fact, 50,000 square feet of additional pedestrian space was was added between East 4th Street and East 9th Street around Astor Place. And that included lots of, you know, new benches and new trees and new bike racks and things like that. They also renovated the Alamo, the Cube mm-hmm. sculpture, and uh, the sculpture of Peter Cooper. Yes. The the Cube had actually disappeared from the, from the square for a short time, which of course concerned many, but it did return... I wouldn't say shiny and new because it's gloriously scrappy and rusted looking. It was back by 2016. And so what 
putting what you just said in context with our story today, the Astor Place riot actually took place along Astor Place, the part that's still there, and then actually part of the pedestrian area here on the exact spot of where the cube is. That's right. Astor Place is now shorter than it used to be Mm -hmm. because Astor Place kind of crashes into a pedestrian space now, um, whereas it used to go all the way over to the Bowery. Luckily, there are so many more places to stand now because of of all this new pedestrian space where you can stand and ruminate on this historical event. Maybe hopefully you've listened to some of this podcast in one of these spots and try to imagine for yourself the, the tumultuous, terrible evening of May 10th, 1849 and the circumstances that went into creating this tragic event. You know, you can also get closer to this story by taking one of our Bowery Boys tours. How do you like that segue, Greg? <laughs> yeah, there is actually a, a, a tour that uh, that includes the Astor Place riot within the walk. That's right. That is the Glamour, Greed, Murder, and Mayhem in 19th Century NoHo tour that, that actually centers around Astor Place and explores this particular story in mm-hmm. detail. There are also two new tours that tie into recent episodes. We now have a World's Fair of 1939 yes. and 1964 tour. Finally, in, in, in time for that anniversary, the 80th anniversary of the 39 World's Fair and the 55th anniversary of the 1964 World's Fair out in Flushing Meadows Corona Park. That is going to be such a fun tour. It's led by Kyle Supley, who who is a, among other things, a World's Fair historian and memorabilia collector. Uh, we also have a new Mysteries of Greenwich Village tour uh, that just launched and ties into our recent show on the history of Greenwich Village. So for more on those tours and any of the other tours, visit BoweryBoysWalks.com. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we will have many historical images, illustrations of the events that took place on May 10th, 1849. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bowery Boys. We would like to send a huge thank you to our patrons uh, who support us on patreon.com with small monthly donations. These donations that keep us in business and help us devote all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys. As our regular feature, we'd like to specifically shout out a few Patreon supporters, Pauline M., Arvin N., Suzette A., and Michael M., all from Manhattan, Derek, Michael W., Jonathan S. from Brooklyn, Pep S., Nicole L., and Christina L. from Queens, Elise S. from Staten Island, Tomas S. from the Bronx, Kristen O. from New Jersey, Pamela H. from Georgia, Vincent D. from California, Con W. from Florida, Andrew V. from Pennsylvania, Sherry H. from Oregon, Aaron W. from Washington, and Bert A. from Belgium. Belgium. Thank you, Bert A. from Belgium. I didn't know that was coming. Thank you so much to these patrons and all of the patrons that have joined us on Patreon.com. As a reminder, as a special thank you, we also record the Bowery Boys Movie Club, and we have a new episode in your feed. This month's movie that we watch and discuss is the 1949 musical classic On the Town, another film celebrating uh, a big anniversary this year. Oh, wow. So On the Town came out 100 years after the Astor Place riot. <laughs> yes. You think anybody has ever 
Made that connection? <laughs> that is a, no, I'm sure they have. There's a very different kind of riot that happens in On the Town. A um, laugh riot. And by the way, Tom does a brilliant job on that one because he has expert knowledge on the original musical and like is actually able to compare lyrics from the original music, well, and musical, and the film. No, it's it's, it's not wonderful. really a big deal. I mean, anybody who you know loves Leonard Bernstein was probably kind of appalled by what they did in <laughs> hacking up at, uh, his score for that musical. For for that film version, but so, so we'll if you, talk about that. Yeah, so if you want to hear more on that tirade, uh, <laughs> support us on Patreon, and that will pop up in your feed. So thank you so much for joining us as we shined a spotlight on the Astor Place Riot of 1849. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.